That's it. The kids are being dismissed to their Sunday school class. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Kings chapter 7. lesson will be in chapter 7, but we need to review real quick the end of chapter 6. So we'll be starting this morning, 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember chapter 6, uh, the story of the lost, uh, uh, the borrowed axe that was lost in the water. Elisha uses a stick to recover it. Then he's surrounded at Dothan by uh, the Syrian army. And Elisha asks God to reveal. Uh, or open the eyes of his servant that's worried about the army that's surrounding them and he's able to see the uh, army of angels that God has protecting Elisha. That would be crazy. Yeah, it's a pretty good story. You should go back and check it out. It's really good. To. Do you have that on the podcast? It's on Facebook. It'll be on the podcast next week. Okay. And then from there, uh, Elisha has the Syrian army blinded and they are led captive to Samaria, where the king is. To which Elisha tells the king to give them food and water for their journey and send them back to their master. And then from there, our story got rather dark. It was a very hard time for Israel. Money was very scarce. The first few pass, uh, first few verses, uh, starting in verse 24, tell you about... I'm sorry, starting in verse... Um, 25 will tell you about the, the great famine and, and all the atrocities that took place there. And then uh, we see the king sort of blaming Elisha for it. He says, God, do so more to me also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. And then we see that the king sends a messenger, which is where we're starting to pick up at in chapter 7. He sends a messenger to Elisha. And it says in verse 32, Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elder, he said to the elder, Yes, see ye how this son of a murderer hath sent to take away mine head. Look when the messenger cometh, shut the door, and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with him, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? So we see the king and his servants getting desperate, getting frustrated, waiting on God to answer their prayers. Only they haven't really been praying to the Lord. They haven't been faithful to God, and that's why the famine showed up in the first place. 
Sometimes trouble hits us as a test, but sometimes, yes, we are being punished. Sometimes the Lord would have us examine our hearts and make sure that we're still doing God's will according to His Word. And so that's what we see with the king. That's what we see with his servant. And that's what brings us into chapter 7. In chapter 7 it says in verse 1, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, in the gate of Samaria. Now remember this is extremely significant because last week we saw that the head of a donkey was being sold for four score pieces of silver. That's 80 pieces of silver for a donkey's head for food. And a the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung was sold for five pieces of silver for food. And that's how bad it was. But here Elisha is saying in chapter 7 in verse 1 that about this time tomorrow a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Now, most of us are not old enough to remember the Great Depression. No, I have no idea what that must have been like, what that must have felt like. But it was very hard for our country for a very long time, for everybody. And that's, to a much greater extent, what Israel's going through here. So can you imagine having your country in such economic crisis and then hearing Elisha say, tomorrow it's going to be all better? That'd be a little hard to believe. Uh, says in verse 2, Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? In other words, if God's going to open up heaven like you open up a window and pour some stuff out of heaven down here on Israel, then that might be possible. But I just don't see how tomorrow everything can just be fixed like that. Uh, and he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. So that's the prophecy, yeah. What was the name of this uh, school lesson? It's just Second Kings 7. So Elisha's prophesying about this Lord who's speaking here, who's doubting. And he's saying, You're going to see... God provide. You're going to see how amazing it is and how all these things how all these things came true, but you're not going to be able to enjoy them. You're not going to be able to eat of it. You're not going to be able to enjoy of it. Well, we'll see. So that brings us to our first point this morning is the prevailing righteousness of lepers. The prevailing righteousness of lepers. Well, 2 Kings has been a book that really lifts up the praises of leprous people. Remember the last leprous person we uh, taught about? 
it was the guy who was cured of leprosy and then given to the greedy guy who went for the garments, right? I'll give you guys a hand and ask you what their names were before next week's Cahoots game. Okay. Anybody remember their names a couple weeks ago? Um, Multiple choice? Nom, I don't have Nom, any prepared. <laughs> what? Was the guy that was cured Naaman? Very close. It was Naaman. Naaman. Yep. And then the one that got it was starting with a G. Mm -hmm. It was Gehazi. Gary. Gary. <laughs> it was Gehazi. Yeah. Look at it, yes. Naaman was a Syrian captain uh, who had heard tale about a, a man in Israel that could cure leprosy. And he goes and he's a little arrogant, but his servants talk him into doing what Elisha tells him to do. And he's cured of his leprosy. And here we see again some lepers that the Lord is able to use. It says in verse 3, There were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? Imagine how hard it is for normal people. Imagine how difficult it must be for leprous people. You know, as much as everybody else is starving to death, lepers, they get the leftovers. There are no leftovers. If we say we will enter into the city, in verse 4, then uh, the famine is in the city. And we shall die there. And if we sit here, we shall die, uh, we die also. Now therefore come, let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So basically what they're saying is, we're going to die no matter what we do. If we sit here and do nothing, we're going to die of starvation. If we go into this Israelite city, we know their laws and they will kill us for sure. But if we go into the camp of the Syrians, who are set up against Israel and all these sieges, which is the reason for the famine, we don't know their laws. There's a chance we might survive. There's a chance we might live, but we're going to die anyways. We may as well die trying to get some food, trying to survive. And uh, so we continue in verse 5. It says, And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of the Syria, behold, there was no man there. Now, when we talk about the camp of the Syrians, we're talking about a massive mobile city. We're talking about hundreds of tents. Thousands of men. With tents full of their stuff. And they come in, these leprous men come into this, this city. They've been set up to besiege Israel. And they come into this sort of mobile city. And it's completely abandoned. There's nobody there. You imagine walking through, it's almost like a ghost town. Walking through these tents with these you know bedrolls where people were sleeping. And sacks and chests full of things that they carried with them on their journeys. And it's as though the city should be full, but it's completely abandoned. There's not one man left in the whole camp. And we get the reason in verse 6, For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and of the Egyptians to come upon us. 
Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. So God made them hear noises. They heard something that they couldn't see. Right Now some might say this was just the Lord um, commanding their ears to hear something that wasn't really there. Right? And that they got panicked and they up and they left. But I don't think that's quite the case. If we go back and revisit chapter 6, we remember that while this same army surrounded Elisha, Elisha wasn't concerned. And he wasn't concerned because he could see what others couldn't. And he prayed and asked God to give his servants sight to see what other men couldn't. And he did. And he saw an army of angels covering the mountain, ready to go to battle on Elisha's behalf. And it's my belief that it's that very same army of angels that the Lord allowed the king of Syria to hear that he had them march past their camp and they could hear a great noise of war. The king thought that the Egyptians and the Hittites had gathered together under the uh, payment of Israel in order to defend them against Syria. Because that's how large an army it sounded like. And in my opinion, this is that army that was protecting Elisha. God's soldiers, the angels, marching past their camp, which brought them in great fear. And it made them to flee. Israel had no way of building themselves an army. They had no way of defending themselves, they had no way of protecting themselves, they had no way of doing anything for themselves. And I'm sure many of them thought in their heads, this is it. This is the final chapter of the nation of Israel. This is how we go. I don't see any way of escape for us now. We have no money to pay for help. We have no money to pay for food. The Syrians are at our doorstep. We get weaker every day. I don't see a way of escape. But that didn't mean there wasn't a way of escape, was did it? There was still hope when there was no hope. There was still a way of salvation when there was no way of salvation. And that's the thing about faith. And it's the thing about trusting the Lord and doing His work. You can't always see it. It's not always obvious, and it doesn't always happen in the way it should happen. Sometimes it'll happen in a way you would have never in a million years guessed. And you can never give up hope so long as God is involved. They were saved from the Syrians without ever lifting a sword, without ever devising a strategy, without doing anything. They were completely saved from the Syrians. And they rose up and they fled from Israel and was only found out about because of these lepers. These lepers decided to take the risk and go into this camp and hope they weren't going to be 
skewered by their swords. And if they hadn't decided to take that risk, then they would have never found out that the city had been emptied. But here are these lepers sitting against this, uh, in the, the camp against Israel, and they have the whole camp to themselves. Let's see what they do. It says in verse 8, When the lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Then they said one to another, We do not well. This is not right. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us now. Now therefore, come, that we may go and tell the king's household. So what's happened? They said, they, they came to this camp. It was all theirs. They didn't have to share it with anybody else. And they were going to go and, and hide all the things and go back and spend it and had all the clothes and all the things they could ever want. They didn't have to share it at all. They didn't have to tell anybody. It was all theirs and theirs alone. And they decided, these leprous men decided, this isn't right. And we're going to do the right thing. I miss a day and time where you didn't need a hundred page contract to get somebody to do the right thing. I miss the day and time where you could trust somebody at his word where we didn't have to have filters on our phones that tell us when a, a call is spam trying to trick us out of all of our money. A day and time where people across the world didn't try to send you fake emails asking you for your social security card. Though that's the world, isn't it? That's kind of expected. You know, it's even worse is what's getting to a place where we can't even trust our own brothers and sisters in Christ. A day and time where everything everybody says has to be double-checked. Nobody does the right thing anymore. If somebody wants something, they just take it for themselves and they think, well, who cares? It doesn't matter. I'll just say sorry later. We do not good. Your selfishness is going to kill Christianity. You think nobody pays attention to the, to the actions you take, the decisions you make? You think there's no consequences for the sins that you commit? You're wrong. If you're a child of the Heavenly Father, you will be punished. Don't fear the punishment. Fear the lack of punishment. It's not scary when God does punish you. It's scary when He doesn't. Amen. As a parent, and as someone who's been somebody's child before, I can tell you the scary part is being punished. You don't like that part. But the more scary part is not being punished. You know what? Fine. Do whatever you want to. That's worse. Rather take the spanking or the grounding over you know what, fine. And then walk out of the room. That's worse. You don't want God getting to that place with you where He says, you know what, fine. You do whatever you want to. 
I'm going to come over here and talk to somebody who wants to listen. Folks, just do the right thing. I know it's harder. I know it's going to cost you personally. But do the right thing. You know, I love working with kids because with kids, it's not as complicated as with you adults. You guys need reasons. You need, uh, how is this going to benefit me? What benefit is there to doing this right thing? I got to know what's the bottom line for me. Why can't I just take what I want to, say sorry later, and move on? I can take advantage of the God system, right? Live have whatever sinful life I want to, and then just wake up in the morning, say sorry, and then he has to forgive me because he's God, right? That's the way the system works. You know what kids do? You know what I tell my kids when they misbehave and I can't quite get through to them? All I have to do is say this. I sit Jacob in front of me. He's done something he's not supposed to. I can't get through to him. And I say, Jacob, you're acting like a bad guy. You're acting like a bad guy, and you need to start acting like a good guy. He'll break down. It'll bother him so bad, he used to cry about it. Bothers him. Because kids just want to do the right thing. It's simple with them. They want to be good. They want to do good. Why do you think the Lord talks about a childlike faith? Because doing right should be simple. Don't overcomplicate it. These lepers came into a camp that could have helped an entire nation. They could have kept it to themselves, but they just simply decided to do the right thing. Well, you know, who's to say this is the wrong thing? You know, this all this property was abandoned, and I came in possession of it. So legally speaking, it all belongs to me. If they want some, they can come pay for it. And most of you would think there's nothing wrong with that. I'm perfectly within my legal right. There's more to right and wrong than what the government says. Right and wrong is about what God says. And God says if you have an opportunity to help somebody and you decide to try to make a profit off of it, then you are in sin. It makes me sick. To look at some churches selling sermons. For $19.95, you can have a relationship with God. I'm not talking about televangelists. I'm talking about guys that I was taught from in Bible college. Choirs that sing praises to God, and you gotta pay for the CD to listen to it. Whereas a church up in Fort Worth was Independent Baptist Church. I'm not going to tell you which one was having a, as a revival or something like that. Maybe it was a special uh, gospel group was coming in to sing and they were selling tickets to hear them sing praises to God. That is evil. And they will stand before the Lord for that one day. How are we expected to survive in such perilous times? when we all continue to do that which is not right in the sight of the Lord. Because were it not for the prevailing righteousness of lepers, Israel would have ceased to exist. And thank God it was these lepers that found it and not some greedy Israelite. Verse 10 says they... I lost my place. So they came and called unto the porter of the city. And they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and the tents as they were. 
And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. And the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry. Therefore they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and go into the city. They've been saved. They have been given the answers to their prayers. And yet they still are living in suffrage. They're still living in bondage to masters that aren't even there anymore. The Syrians had them right where they wanted them. We're slowly killing them economically. We're ready to siege and destroy them one final time. And they had been saved from these terrible Syrians. And yet, these Israelites continue to choose to live in their poverty. They were free. It was done. They didn't have to deal with it anymore, and yet they still were because they had no faith. God had given them the answers. It was right there in front of them. They could have just reached out and took it. But they didn't because they had no faith. I wonder how much we miss out on because we fail to reach out and take it by faith. I wonder what opportunities we missed out on because we chose not to reach out and take them by faith. If you ever read Hebrews 11, you will not be surprised to hear that most people refer to that chapter as the Hall of Faith. It talks about all the Old Testament people. It talks about Abraham, right? It talks about Noah before that. It talks about Jacob and Joseph. It talks about Moses. It talks about Joshua. It talks about uh, Samson. And all these incredible heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, and all the amazing things they did. And you know what it says about them? Before it begins each statement? Two words. Two very simple words. By faith. Every time somebody does something amazing in the Old Testament, it's preceded with the words, by faith. Because what made Noah special wasn't his ark. It wasn't the animals. It wasn't his survival. It was his faith. What made Abraham so special wasn't his patriarchal uh, skills. It wasn't his ability to lead people. It was his faith. What made Moses so special wasn't his training as an Egyptian prince. It wasn't the miracles he performed. It wasn't the plagues he, he had brought forth. It was his faith. And all the way down the Old Testament, the same thing can be said of each of these people. That what made them incredible, what set them apart, was not the miracles and the amazing things and the stories we read. What made them special was that they chose to have faith. Even when it was hard. 
Things weren't always easy for Moses. There was a time he was rejected as being the prince of Egypt, became one of the slaves, and then was chased out of his homeland for accusations of murder. Living on the backside of the desert. You think that's the way Moses wanted his life to go? Not at all. He was 40 when he was chased out of his homeland. He lived another 40 years on the backside of the desert, being taken from prince of Egypt to a shepherd working for another shepherd. Then when he was 80 years old, God showed him the burning bush. Do you think that's the way Moses wanted his life to go? Of course not. But he kept faith. He kept faith in Egypt. He kept faith even in the backside of the desert. And keeping faith when things went wrong is what led him to the burning bush. Which led him back to Egypt. Which led him to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was a crowning moment for Moses. He saw the visual image of God Himself. One of the most amazing stories you read in the Bible. Moses was there at the Red Sea. Man, people are still talking about it. They got back into the Promised Land and people were like, you can just have the land. We heard about what happened at the Red Sea. We don't want any of that. I'm not going to the river today. The Israelites are coming. They're still talking about that today. That's one of the things people know from the Bible even if they don't know the Bible. Parting the waters. Sometimes more amazing than what they talk about Jesus walking on water. Well, there was this other guy before Jesus. He parted the waters in half and dropped an ocean on the heads of their enemies. This was all possible by faith. And faith that was kept not just in the good times, but in the hard times too. There are going to be times... And I was talking about this the other day uh, with my grandmother. There's a time in every person's life where they begin to go from childhood or young adulthood to adulthood. And they begin to realize that life isn't going to turn out the way I wanted it to. Everybody has that day. And it's a hard day. And it's a painful day. But when you get to those tough days, that's when you need your faith most. It's easy to believe when everything's going the way you want it to. It's easy to trust God when He's answering all your prayers and everything's going fine. The real test of faith is when you hit a day like Job had. God allows everything to be taken from you. Do you still continue to trust Him? That's when you need your faith the most. This king did not have faith. And his people were about to pay the price for it. But verse 13, one of his servants answered and said, Let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain which are left in the city. Behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, there are even as all the multitude of Israel that are consumed. And let us send and see. A large portion of Israel had died of starvation. But they sent five men on five horses to go spy out the land. And they knew if those men didn't come back, it was a trap. The king of Israel had no faith, but a servant whose name isn't even given 
saved Israel. Sometimes being the one that has faith for somebody else is a very thankless job. Sometimes being the one that offers hope when nobody else has any, you're not going to get a whole lot of parades and cheering. But if it weren't for those people, where would we all be? If it wasn't for this unnamed servant, Israel would have ceased to exist in this moment. Let's take some time throughout our week to stop and thank God for the unnamed servants in our life. Those that keep us going and aren't nearly thanked enough for it. They took, therefore, two chariots, or two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. When we see number two this morning is, the promises of God are fulfilled. They took, therefore, two chariots, uh, horses, oh, we read that one, verse 15 says, and they went after them unto Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels, which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. They were so scared of the noises they heard that they were lighting the loads off of their animals trying to get them to go faster. So they were literally throwing gold and garments and valuables off of their animals as they're trying to run away. So as these horses and chariots, these few men that, that the king sent into the Syrian camp, as they're riding up, they're seeing all of these things just cast on the ground leading up to the encampment. You imagine these men have just been just as much hungry as everybody else. They were as scared and starving as everybody else, and they see all of these things lying on the ground along their path. Amazing to me that these men who chose to brave it, for all they knew, for all they knew, they were heading out into a trap. They had no idea. One says one, one says the other. They don't know for sure, but they had the courage to go and check it out for themselves. And because they did, along their way, there were treasures waiting for them. If we will choose to have the courage to follow God's will, there will be blessings waiting for us all along the way. Uh, it says in verse 16, the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So what happened is they found out, yes, in fact, the Syrians did abandon this camp, and they let all the people of Israel know, and all the people of Israel were on their way to that Syrian camp to go get some stuff for themselves. So it says, a measure of fine flour was uh, sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. That's exactly what Elisha said was going to happen. Those were the exact measurements Elisha said was going to be taking place. God kept his promise. It's sometimes difficult to believe that God's going to keep his promises when you've been suffering for so long. 
and we wait on the Lord and we wait to Him to move and that little devil pops up on our shoulder and those thoughts begin to creep up in our mind we begin to ask ourselves things like what if God doesn't show up we begin to ask ourselves things like what if nothing does ever happen what if this is just the way it's going to be for the rest of my life and it gets really hard to continue to believe that God is going to keep his promise now that sounds terrible but it's true we as human beings we struggle with things like that but the, where the rubber really meets the road isn't in the doubts that we shouldn't have because we shouldn't have them but we do we're human beings we doubt well the real true test of faith is is when it comes time to to take action it comes time to make a decision and will your decision be one of faith or will it be one of doubt and safety it would have been safe for them to stay in the city and leave the spoils of Syria there but they would have eventually starved to death being safe would have killed them but they took the risk in trusting the Lord and God took care of them God kept his promise and he keeps his promises to us as well but then also God kept his promise to somebody else verse 17 says and the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate remember this guy this is the one who said, well, yeah, if God will open a window to heaven, then sure, all of this might be possible. And he says, yeah, you're going to see this as possible, but you're not going to get to enjoy it. We come back to him. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. As the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And the Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might this be such a thing? He said, Behold, thou shalt see with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. He was literally trampled to death. How horrible. What a terrible way to die. That you're trampled by desperate people. Trying to keep themselves alive, they ended up killing somebody else in a mad panic. But all this was orchestrated by God. This didn't have to happen. This Lord might have just had faith in God. He might have even repented of his doubt. But he held stubbornly to his own pious ways and died as a result. Did God kill him? No. Who killed him? The people. Exactly. The people killed him. God just didn't save him. We want to blame God for this. We want to say, wow, how vicious and angry a God he is to have this man killed. No, no. God didn't kill him. The desperate people killed him. God just didn't save him. Gave him a chance. Wanted to save him. But God doesn't save somebody who doesn't want to be saved. Here this morning, there are people that might be watching 
that aren't saved. That don't know Christ as their personal Savior. That have not been saved from their sins. And they too will not be saved if they don't want to be. God doesn't save anybody who doesn't want to be saved. The same thing true here. But we can learn something from this doubtful Lord. This man who's given himself over to despair. No matter how bad things get, a Christian can never despair. Should the, the idea of doubt and fear should be driven from our minds entirely. And we should keep hope and love in our hearts through faith. Because of all the most incredible, amazing things we've seen people do throughout the Bible, the most amazing power God gives us is the ability to hang on to hope and continue to show forth love despite the circumstances around us. That is our greatest power as Christians. We'll live through the prevailing righteousness of lepers and we will see and continue to believe that we will see the promises of God fulfilled in our own lives as well. So next week, like I said, will be the Cahoots game. And then after that, we'll pick up in chapter 8. We will eventually start um, hopping through some of this later on in the book of 2 Kings. It gets very genealogy-based. And so some of that we will hop through. He begat him, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he begat him, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and so forth and so on. You've got the chart. So that is it for today. We'll be back at 11 o'clock for morning worship.